Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm Dom Nichols, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, we hear about latest Russian strikes across the country and Ukraine's continued counteroffensive. We learn about an online teleservice offering health advice to people outside the country. A tank update from former commander Hamish de Brutton Gordon. And we hear from our very own David Knowles, still somewhere on the road in Eastern Europe. Bravery takes you through the most unimaginable hardships to finally reward you with victory. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. We need a military strategy for Ukraine to gain a decisive advantage on the battlefield, to win the war. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday, we sit down with leading journalists from The Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Wednesday, the 14th of June, one year and 110 days since the full-scale invasion began. Today, I'm joined by Francis Durnley, Assistant Comment Editor, Hamish de Breton-Gordon, former tank commander, Rob Hicken, CEO of GP Now, and David Knowles. I kicked off the episode with the latest updates from Ukraine. The news is that Ukrainian forces have continued their counter-offensive operations in at least three directions and made further limited territorial gains as of yesterday. That was from Ukraine's Deputy Defence Minister, Hannah Malyar. She said that Ukrainian forces had advanced, I mean, it doesn't sound a lot, but hey, it's 250 metres northeast of Bakhmut and 200 metres south of Bakhmut. That's that continued push around the city. Very, very slow progress, but um, compared to what we saw over the last few weeks, that yeah, we've just got to keep that into context. Now, Ukrainian General Staff spokesperson Andrei Kovalev said that Ukrainian forces have so far liberated over 100 square kilometres since the start of the counteroffensive. And that claim, somewhat bizarrely, was supported by Yevgeny Prigozhin. I mean, obviously, he's saying it because of his ongoing spat internally with the with uh, Shoigu and the Russian MOD, but interesting nonetheless to see him come out and say that. Elsewhere, strikes across the country. A Russian warship in the Black Sea fired four missiles at the Ukrainian port city of Odessa, killed three so far, injured 13. This was part of an overnight barrage across Ukraine. The Ukraine Armed Forces South Command said that a business centre, educational institution, 
residential complex and shops in the city were hit. Another three civilians killed in separate missile strikes in the eastern region of Donetsk. That was according to uh, the regional governor, Pavlo Krylenko. The regional governor, he said on, or put a post on Facebook, saying the missiles hit private houses in the city. Cities and caused significant damage in Kramatorsk. At least five private houses were destroyed and about two dozen damaged. And in Kostanivka, two were destroyed, 55 damaged. Now you will see images on social media that will show the McDonald's. The McDonald's restaurant in Odessa smashed up by a missile strike. To which I say to all the bots and trolls listening, why did the Odessa McDonald's have to cease to exist? Now I know that's a bit reductionist and in no way do I seek to disrespect or minimise the impact and the loss of life. But to highlight how stupid and inhumane and barbaric this Russian assault is... I just want to ask the trolls that that question. And don't give me any guff about, oh, it was probably on the way to a military target, knocked off, knocked off course by air defence. We've seen enough missiles get through and hit civilian targets for us to know that this is either deliberate targeting of civilians or, or incompetence on the part of Russian commanders who are ordering the strikes. So if you answer with honesty and empathy, I will engage with you. McDonald's, was it full of Nazis? Was General Zeluzny sitting in the back drawing up battle plans over a chocolate milkshake? And I ask you again, why did the Odessa McDonald's have to cease to exist? Simple. Elsewhere, elsewhere, Denise Brown, who's humanitarian coordinator for Ukraine at the UN's Office for Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, OCHA, she said in a statement, people in Odessa woke up once again to see their loved ones killed or injured by an airstrike. This is not an isolated case. Since the start of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, indiscriminate attacks and the use of explosive weapons with wide impact in populated areas have left thousands of civilians killed and injured. This must stop. International humanitarian law must be respected. Civilians are not a target. So good. Great. That is to be welcomed. Thank you, Ms. Brown. That's not absolutely saying unequivocally that Russia's doing this, but it's as close to anything else I've I've heard from the UN. I have asked the OCHA with an interview for an interview with Ms. Brown. They did respond initially and it's all gone a bit quiet since, but I will keep trying. Elsewhere, the death toll from Russia's attack on the Krivi-Ri area two nights ago has gone up to 12. The city mayor, Alexander Vikul, he said today that last night a 67-year-old man Uh, succumbed to burns sustained during the attack the night before. And just finally for me, the latest US military aid package has been announced. This is $325 million. And they are supplying, I'd be interested in your thoughts on this a bit later, Hamish, they're supplying 15 Bradley infantry fighting vehicles, 10 Striker infantry vehicles as well, NASAMs and HIMARS ammo, that's air defence and long-range precision artillery, Stinger air anti-air systems, Javelin 84 and tow anti-armor systems, tow being tube-launched, optically tracked, wire-guided, more 155mm and 105mm artillery rounds and munitions for obstacle clearing. So now we will talk a little bit about the, the recent, uh, well, the counterattack and, um, and those pictures we've seen of destroyed Western kit, mostly the, the um, or most strikingly, the, the US Bradleys and, and the, the Leopard 2s. But um, interesting to see that... that you know, as I've said before, it's about who can stand the fight the longest. And the, the US have come straight out of the blocks with another 15 Bradley. But anyway, I'd like to turn now to Rob 
uh, Hicken, GB Now, I say the Ukrainian, well, it's a crisis care telehealth service. Robert's joining us from Singapore. Thank you so much for joining us today, Rob. Could you um, give us a brief explanation of the service and describe the work you do, please? Welcome. Thank you, Don, and thank you, Team Telegraph, for the opportunity to address your audience today. Yeah, my name's um, Rob Hicken. I'm the CEO and founder of a company called Practice Innovators International, and uh, we have a telehealth platform branded as GP Now. We're focused on providing virtual care for the most vulnerable. GP Now's latest initiative is the Ukrainian Crisis Care Telehealth Service. Our journey started last year. We have a team in Romania who, when the war broke out, went to the Isachir border and started sending us pictures of the um, images of the 90,000 people flooding across the border from Ukraine into Romania. And we got together as a team and wondered whether we would be able to beam in doctors safely and securely from around the world to try and alleviate some of the um, pressure at point of care. So we're backed by Amazon Web Services. We got together. We did some due diligence in March. We did 128 tests into Ukraine, including occupied territory. And then we ruggedized the platform so it was fit for purpose, thanks to our friends and uh, completed two rounds of scalability and uh, technical due diligence. And we launched the service at the end of March. It was a bit of a challenge, but over the the last 12 or 18 months, we've been able to help almost 8,000 Ukrainian families in Ukraine, including occupied territory across Europe and around the world. We've conducted 13,000 sessions Each session, on average, is about 18 minutes. Our psychologists are typically on for about an hour or so. And, yeah, um, we're very proud of the the outcome so far. Brilliant. Thanks, Rob. And when we were chatting earlier on, you described it as a hospital in the clouds, which I thought was a great way of... Of describing it, so so folk in Ukraine or and elsewhere, anyone affected by the war, are able to go online and get, if not an immediate appointment, as in there and then, a live appointment with one of your seventy-five doctors, or be set up for one in the very near future. Can you talk us through that process, how that works, and how people access this? Sure, absolutely, Dom. Yeah, so we were blessed to have Dr. Vadim Ilyashenko, who's a neurosurgeon at the Oberig Clinic in Kiev. He joined the team as our chief medical officer, and we were able to, well, initially we were hoping just to provide general practice, family practitioners to provide primary healthcare services, but we've actually now got 75 certified Ukrainian medical professionals 12 are in Ukraine still, but the rest are predominantly um, mums, doctors who have had to leave the country and are now located across Europe. They are refugees themselves and unable to practice. You mentioned McDonald's. One, One highly qualified doctor was having to work in a McDonald's to put food on the table. So we've onboarded them all. We have everything from... um, dermatologists, oncologists, pediatricians, psychologists, neurologists, uh, even veterinarians on the platform. And they're available 24 by 7. The the patient journey is very simple. And if you do know anybody who would like free medical advice, comfort and care, all the patient needs to do is register and then 
select and connect. The doctors are available real time and we can bring in specialists if additional assistance into the call. Or we also have a reception service manned by Tanya and um, Evgenia from Mariupol and and, uh, Crimea who are online uh, around the clock as well. It's a very simple journey. And um, yeah, as as you say, Dom, with 1,100 or so hospitals and clinics that have been damaged or destroyed since the war started, and that doesn't include the destruction from last last week's um, Nova Dam, the, the Nova Kharkov, Kharkov Dam tragedy, and we have actually offered our doctors to assist with that. So it's a virtual hospital. We have been cyber attacked and... Uh, I'm pleased to say we've provided more than 2,000 hours of free consultations with zero downtime since the war, since we went live last year. That's brilliant. And um, just moving on for the in the interest of time, but you were saying earlier on to me that actually having Ukrainian citizens doing this, firstly, there's there's immediately no no barrier, no no um, language barrier, and of course, just having the softer side of it, the being able to connect about shared cultural references geography and so on and so forth is a real on the psychological side even if that's not the reason people got in touch with you in the first place that is all very powerful stuff could you just just talk us through that and if you have any case studies that you're able to share or skated obviously for names but that, that'd be really really powerful uh, absolutely yeah so we, we say we provide free medical advice and these are highly qualified certified Ukrainian medical professionals, the best of the best, who have been some, most of whom have been displaced. But the comfort comes from Ukrainian citizens located in Poland or Germany or France or Hungary, anywhere across Europe or around the world. We've even had one patient in Vietnam being able to talk to a doctor in their mother tongue to be able to be able to explain what the issues are and then the that's where the comfort comes from and the care comes from how this group of 75 medical amazing medical professionals have morphed into a team and um, they don't just take two panadol and, and rest they actually care follow up and work and pass through the um the patient from one to another, if you need psychological support. There's a case study about a young boy who's now in Israel on our website. Another young girl, she has skin issues. To be able to talk about that to a dermatologist, right up to now we're helping girls that have been abused and we've helped patients and and civilians and and discharged soldiers with post-traumatic stress disorder with our psychiatrists and psychologists and psychotherapists. Buried in that 8,000 is one very special case, a young girl called Anastasia. She was 18 at the time. She came to us last September. She was in a alone, afraid, in a hostel in Poznan, and it was quite horrible, and she was dealing with a condition called chondral chordoma, which is life-threatening throat and neck cancer. She had a massive tumour, was unable to swallow, and we took her under our wing, We scoured all of Europe, around the world, Finland, Germany, Poland, and then we, um, even the um, Colorado Children's Hospital in the United States. And then fortunately, we were able to get her transferred, test done, and um, treated at the Leiden Medical University in in the Netherlands. And she had two rounds of surgery, one in January and, and two more in February, the last on the 24th of February, ironically. 
And um, three weeks ago, we got the all clear. All the cancer has been removed. So it's um, a very eclectic service. And uh, we are very proud of what this amazing team, the technology is great, but it's the the people, the team, it's the Ukrainian steel of these of, of our support team and of the the doctors that are working miracles right now it's an amazing inspirational group of people to be to be blessed to be working with well thanks rob that's fascinating thanks for um for coming on today we will of course stay in touch we'll put all your links in the episode notes and um of course i imagine like any other charity or any other group like this you'll um you'll be keen to receive donations from anyone that, that wanted to assist and it's scalable i suppose because it's all all online i mean there's no no limit is that right i'm not, I'm not yeah absolutely dom you know when we did our preparing with with amazon we know the platform can scale to 500,000 sessions a month we're currently running at about 1,000 we can easily scale to 10,000 but our funding was exhausted at the end from amazon was exhausted up until the end of 2022 i haven't been able to pay our doctors since february we're desperate for funds we have private contributions are available and corporate programs we have a registered charity now in the united states for contributions and we're on the Benevity platform companies like adobe are looking at getting behind us but if anyone out there can help us help ukraine we 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 need funding to be able to keep the program going and growing and any assistance would be sincerely appreciated brilliant thanks rob well like i say we'll put the put the details in the show notes and let's please do uh, please do stay in touch rob thanks so much for that francis can i turn to you and have a look at the diplomatic front please Well, thanks, Dom. Yesterday, I argued that Ukraine is to some extent a victim of its own success in that people have a grand expectation for this counteroffensive in the short term, echoing the extraordinary gains it made in the short order last year. It's evident today that Kyiv is aware of this charge as Ukraine's ambassador to the UK has defended the relatively minor gains so far, saying that the political element of retaking the villages in Donetsk is being overlooked. Now, this is quite interesting. So he was asked by Kay Burley on Sky News about the recent gains by Kyiv and the quote from Vadim Prystekel was as follows. Everybody is talking about the military side of this and it's been covered already. I agree with you. That's its small villages right now. But there is a very important political element which was overlooked by many spectators. The political one is that this territory already was introduced by Putin and his parliament into their constitution. So now he has to resolve two things. First, to explain to Russians what is happening and why their troops are retreating from allegedly their own territory. And second, the difference between these lands and Crimea, which are totally blurred now. With the same intensity as we promised, we will come to liberate Crimea. That's the same lens with Russia and the Russian constitution. I think this is an interesting way of thinking about it. And we're hoping to talk to Colin Freeman later in the week about the reaction on the ground in Ukraine, in these villages that are being liberated. But this political dynamic and the problems that it gives Putin if this continues to happen is, as I say, interesting, driving a wedge potentially between various political elements within the country and also putting increasing pressure on him, given now that supposedly this is Russian territory. This is Russia that has been invaded. So how is he going to respond to this? And really, the answer, I think, is he's not going to be able to respond any further than he already has in Ukraine. So 
But I think that element of it is interesting, which is why I've drawn attention to it first. Now, the next story I want to talk about is Nord Stream. You mentioned last week, Dom, that we've not done a deep dive on this for a while because there are so many accusations flying around. It seems that almost every country now has been accused of being behind it, including the United States, Germany and Britain. Our not discussing it for a while isn't a conspiracy, but we take it seriously what we report and we need time to read the original articles and research so that we can summarise the latest developments accurately. So just to remind listeners on the background on this, on September 26th last year, explosions ripped through the Nord Stream pipelines funnelling natural gas from Russia to Europe. It triggered a massive underwater leak and rendered three out of the four pipes useless. The apparent attack was immediately branded as a deliberate sabotage by NATO and was initially blamed on Russia. So European security officials observed Russian Navy support ships nearby where the leaks later occurred, as well as Russian submarines. The former head of Germany's Federal Intelligence Service alleged that Russia sabotaged the pipelines to justify their halting of gas supplies prior to the explosion and said Russia's, quote, halt in gas supplies can now be justified simply by pointing to the defective pipeline without having to advance alleged turbine problems or other unconvincing arguments for breaking their supply contracts. But now the developments are that the finger has shifted to Kyiv, which has always denied this. It's blamed Russia for what it calls a terrorist attack against the EU. But recent months investigations have pointed to involvement of Ukraine. Documents leaked as part of the Pentagon intelligence on Discord, which, of course, we've talked about at length, suggested they might be implicated. And last week, the Washington Post reported that President Biden's administration was informed of a plot against Nord Stream by the Ukrainian military by a close European ally. And it's since emerged in the last 28 hours, 28 hours, 24 hours or so, days do seem longer here, that the Dutch handed over information to Washington in mid-June last year in the hope of thwarting any attack by Ukraine. So apparently details were only discussed by a small group of top politicians in The Hague and were also shared with Berlin, which is currently carrying out its own investigation into the explosions. And I think I mentioned that a couple of weeks ago, that they've been looking at certain individuals they think might have been implicated in this. Now, as a consequence of the developments in the last 24 hours, Dmitry Medvedev, Deputy Chairman of the Security Council in Russia, and in, of course, at the moment, is very much involved in in the UN activity, shockingly. He's gained a lot of notoriety recently for his incendiary remarks about Russia's adversaries. He said in a Telegram post that Russia now has proof Western countries did the Nord Stream attacks. And not only this, he's saying as a consequence that there is no nothing stopping Russia from destroying the undersea cables of our enemy. Now, this kind of claim comes as no great surprise. Russia is consistently trying to find justifications to it to escalate this war or to engage in the sort of sabotage activity they have been alleged to have taken part in on cables and wind farms supposedly probing for weak points in Western defence. But nonetheless, these kind of remarks will, I'm sure, cause some alarm in European capitals. Now, I'm not going to speculate personally who was responsible for Nord Stream. We simply don't know enough of the facts at this point. There are strong reasons as to why both Ukraine and Russia would seek to do it. I've discussed Russia's possible motivations for Ukraine. It would have undermined the Russian economy and further driven a wedge between Russia and Europe, sealing off 
the option of Russia being able to turn on the taps in exchange for European countries not supporting Ukraine in the war. So there are a lot of different factors in play here. And it may even be one that will take a long, long time for us to really gauge the truth of it. But nonetheless, we are reporting it. And I'm interested to hear listeners' perspectives on this story. The final one that I want to touch on relates to the nuclear power plant at Zaporizhia. And I'm looking at Hamish here. So a planned visit by the head of the UN's nuclear watchdog in Zaporizhia has been delayed by some hours. That's according to a diplomatic source. So the source doesn't make clear whether Rafael Grossi, the head of the International Atomic Energy Agency, would arrive at the plant. But we know that it was planned to be today. But they've said that there is now a delay, perhaps for as much as 20 24 hours. The energy agency said that it wants to access the site near Zaporizhia to check water levels after the dam was breached and a nearby reservoir lost much of its water. And we also understand Mr. Grossi had held talks with uh, Vladimir Zelensky in Kyiv on Tuesday. Now, this isn't necessarily any cause for alarm, this development, but evidently there is an increased impetus for international observers to get there as soon as possible following the dam and the danger that it could be a future target utilised by Russia as a means to trigger some kind of chemical incident, which, of course, we've touched on in the past. But I imagine Hamish will have some thoughts on that. But that's where we are in the political space, Dom. Lovely. Thanks, Francis. Hamish, let's uh, let's turn to you. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to Telegraph Towers. Good to see you again. With your uh, with your tanky hat on, if I may, start there. How would you assess what what little, very little we've seen in these very, very early days of Ukraine's counter offensive? How would you assess their ability to conduct combined arms warfare, which I was suggesting some weeks ago might be the best they could hope to get out of this rather than huge advances just show to themselves as, as much as to others that they can do it. And they've started off with that pretty much the hardest thing to do, a minefield breach. But how do you assess their ability to combat, conduct combined arms warfare? And then I'd like to talk to you about thermal sites and how, how we fight at night, particularly from, from tanks. But Hamish, welcome. Good afternoon, everybody. And, and great to be here at Telegraph Towers with Francis and, and Dom. But but yeah, looking towards the counteroffensive, I'm sort of slightly divided on what what I should say really, because one doesn't want to give too much away to the enemy as were OPSEC, and I think the Ukrainians have we discussed before have been incredibly canny and haven't really said a great deal about any detail. And the Ukrainian ambassador in London, who I know quite well, who is an outstanding operator, again discussing this morning. But but looking at what we know, I'm I am pretty impressed. From what I can gauge, they are, as you've discussed before, recce by force at the moment, trying to find out how the land lies. Do, they've done about 27 different of these recce by force at, at squadron company group type level, which, which the coordination behind that is, is phenomenal. And I would just, and looking for a weak point, I having had a maybe a little bit more than a cursory look at the, you, at the Russian defensive lines, think they're pretty linear and I don't think they're very deep. So, as you say, Dom, a minefield crossing, a salt river crossing, the most difficult operations that, that you can do in war. But if we focus on one particular issue, as the Russians have, we've got this one damaged leopard and a number of da- damaged Abrahams, which the Russians are talking about all day, every day. Now, to me, that, that's jolly good. When you look at that operation, 
although it, it seems to have failed, but the way that they've got the mine plows combined with infantry and artillery sort of strikes me that they really know what they're doing. Now, the fact that the Russians have grabbed on this and put so much focus on it, what's happening elsewhere? We know there are a lot more than a couple of leopards knocking around and uh, the, the main force is yet to be committed. So I, I, think, I think they're doing all right. I agree with the Ukraine ambassador in London that things are, are happening. But, and it's a, it's a massive front, so I, I wouldn't be too concerned. And uh, I think things are going to move forward sort of pretty rapidly. So I, I, think, I think at the moment we're, we're on course. No need to panic. Thanks, Hamish. I think you meant you had a, a bit of a, a senior moment there. I think you meant Bradley's rather than Abrams. We've not yet seen, as far as I know, US M1 Abrams tanks in action, but a number of Bradley, Bradleys have been knocked out. I think about sixteen in the last the last report I saw. But yeah, I think that was unless you know unless you know something I don't. But no, Joel. Uh, the, the only thing I would say is, and we might come on to it. The, the Americans are, have com- are committing thirty one. Abrahams, M1 Abrahams to the fight. And there was a, a, in the Wall Street Journal yesterday, detail about the depleted uranium ammunition that the Americans are going to put with them. So they are not too far over the hill. Sure. And maybe we need to at some point come back to the discussion about DU rounds to please uranium and how it's not the sort of frank franken round of, of, of bot stardom. Now, Hamish, how do tanks see at night? I, I don't, they, they haven't got huge, great goggles on the front so how do you fight at night from a tank i heard your description earlier on in the week or was it yeah it was on monday i think and and pretty good dom i can't remember if you were if it's just challenger one that you were um you you operated on or challenger two as well chieftain it was chieftain okay fair enough so I, I think back first of all how tanks operate at night is through their 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 predominantly thermal sites night vision sites and using GPS, and also using their lasers to gauge distances. And I'll just just come back to that. My memories of the first Gulf War, where we had Challenger 1, we had a very sort of early stage of thermal sights, but it still worked incredibly well. What we didn't have, though, was GPS. Now, at night, the, the most challenging thing is knowing exactly where you are. And in the first Gulf War, we had one GPS Per squadron, so one GPS for every 14 tanks. Now everybody has them. They probably have several. And knowing where you are is, is absolutely crucial. I can only really comment on Challenger 2. I, have, I haven't seen a Leopard 2 night sight as well, and they're of similar capability. These are very reliable, and basically they turn night into day. There are various different settings that you can use. And they are not tunnel visioned. When you were a chopper pilot flying around with night vision goggles on, not that I've ever done it. I understand you have quite a, a sort of narrow field of view. With a Challenger 2 night sight, actually, you've got a very wide field of view, which you can then focus in on. I can't remember the times magnification, but 20 or 50 or whatever it is. So with that, you don't not only use that for finding and attacking targets, but also for navigation. So it it takes quite a lot of training. It takes time to get to, to know how to, to use it properly and the confidence. But it does. I mean, I, I remember my when I was second in command of the second Royal Tank Regiment, we spent four, no, no probably about eight weeks in, in Canada and Batis training, only operating at night. And I must say, after a couple of weeks, it made no difference whether you're at night or day. 
And if that's the case, if you are fighting an enemy that, that cannot see at night, you have a great advantage. And I think I, I mentioned it in Roland's piece yesterday that there is, if you cannot see at night and somebody is attacking you or there are tanks and armoured vehicles around, it's petrifying. It's incredibly disorientating. So that is the, 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 the basis. And the other thing about combining the thermal sights, the laser, a laser, basically a tank has a laser to work out what the ranges are. And you can then compute that into a grid reference, which you can then pass back to your artillery so they can support you as well. And against somebody who can't see at night, it is also slightly, and I, I sort of caveat this with various situations, it's slightly easier sometimes to pick out mines at night through a thermal sight than it is in a day. Difference in temperature, cooling down the temperature, mines tend to be metal or, or, or have a metal content. Therefore, they cool down at different rates to, the, to, to the, the soil around them. So it's something with training, you can operate as though it's daytime. And if you're fighting somebody who can't, then you have a significant advantage. Over. Thanks, Hamish. And um, just before we go over to you-know-who, with your other hat on, could you talk to us a little bit about Zaporizhia nuclear power plant? So the delayed visit of the UN nuclear chief, Rafael Grossi, the head of the um, IAE, IAEA, Old MacDonald International Atomic Energy Agency, is going to go ahead. But your thoughts on what's happening around Zaporizhia, please? Yeah, no, no, absolutely. I, I think on its own, not hugely significant. But when you tie it in with everything else that's happening and... I expect. Well, I hope some people read my piece in the Telegraph a few days ago about about the whole nuclear issue. In fact, I think there were two and a half thousand comments, including the the Russian embassy. So I think rather got under people's skin a bit there. Now, from what I understand, Grossi can't get to Zaporizhia at the moment because it's too dangerous. So that is a concern. His people said, I think on the fourth of May, that the Russians had wired explosives around Zaporizhia. That is a concern. I saw some intelligence yesterday and also stuff on Telegram about another nuclear power station called the Kursk nuclear power station, which is near the Ukrainian border in Russia, near the eastern border, which uh, these various Telegram channels quoted from Putin, who had ordered uh, a sabotage operation there to look like a false flag operation. Again, on its own, we see a lot of this stuff going on. We then also on Telegram yesterday and previously and other reporting, a place called Titan, a massive chemical plant in northwest Crimea, which also apparently has been prepared to blow. Now, you put that all together and you put the dam explosion together, which I know has been discussed a lot, but I am absolutely of the view that it was a explosion that had to have been planted prior to anything. And I know Putin said yesterday it was high Mars. You you just have a look at the way the explosives go straight up in the air. A high Mars would have some deflection to it. So I have no doubt. So you put all that together. And that is an area for concern. If the Russians are going to take our concern away, they need to allow the demilitarized zone around Zaporizhia and around the Zaporizhia nuclear power station. And the UN and the International Atomic Energy Agency are an agency of the UN. I think the UN need to get in there and create a DMZ to ensure that no accident can happen. 
Lovely. Thank you, Hamish. Now, down this road that never seems to end, where new adventure lies just around the bend, we find David Knowles. David, how are you getting on? Hi, everybody. Dom, how many more of these have you got? Are you, are you handing over to Francis tomorrow? Yes. Hi, everybody. Good to be back. Uh, you've caught us in a bit, of a, um, a bit of an incident, actually. One of the volunteers' cars has been smoking and overheating, so he had to pull in, uh, in the most on the German hard shoulder. So the rest of the convoy, so we had to signal up and down the line, and we had to get off the motorway as fast as possible, double back to a service station while we worked out what to do. And then a most extraordinary piece of luck appears to have taken place. So these guys are in their, in their, in their truck, waiting on the side of a German motorway, failing to get through to the, the, the rescue agency, uh, being put on hold and everything. And a Ukrainian drives past, driving, completely by chance, we don't know who they are, who was driving an empty car, sort of car pickup thing, truck. I, I realise I don't drive, so I really lack the vocabulary for this sort of thing. But, you know, the, 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 the thing that carries cars, well, a Ukrainian was driving one of these. They, they picked, saw them by the side, I think clocked the number plate, clocked the, you know, the kind of car they're driving, and has picked them up, and they're just pulling into the service station where I am now, carrying this broken-down car. So I can, I can see it right in front of me, this big van and the... the the, the, the one of our trucks, which has gone slightly wrong, you might be able to hear the volunteers clapping. This man is is picked up our picked up some of the volunteers and brought them here. Hang on, I'm just going to get get my notes because <laughs> we'll try and talk to this Ukrainian man. I'm told he's told he's a Russian speaker, so it might require some translation. But yeah, so it's not all it's not all roses. It's been been a very very long day. Started very early in the centre of Germany, now towards the Polish border. The volunteers are crowding around the van now, so say thank you to this guy who's picked them up. He's, he's smiling, so that's good. No idea. We'll have to find out what happens. So the journey itself, I mean, I spoke yesterday about the, the sort of slow sense of, the, of everything changing. You know, in, in central Germany, it's beautiful. There's sort of rolling hills and mountains and castles and cliffs and that sort of thing. And we've as we've gone east, we've gone into the former, obviously former East Germany. And the architecture does change. You can tell you're in a slightly different place. And it's it's really fascinating. I mean, you go through, we're going through Thuringia and Saxony and you see the huge factories, uh, the towering slag heaps of red earth and, 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 and coal and everything, one of which was bedecked with solar panels. And there are still so many wind farms as far as you can see. So it's a really, a really fascinating, fascinating place. And to our German listeners, and I'm so sorry I can't spend more time in your wonderful country. I really, I really enjoyed this, this stretch of the, of the journey. Francis, yesterday you asked about what the volunteers' thoughts on the counteroffensive, what would their... Um, you know what? What's what's them? What, you know what's their morale like, like? Like now, heading heading to Ukraine, and I was chatting to some of them and thinking about it, and it was quite interesting because what they said was, well, it sort of doesn't matter. They'd be doing this anyway. If Ukraine's back completely back to the wall and the Russians are pushing on, they'd still be driving there, still trying to help. So the fact that the counteroffensive has started and there's some potentially good news coming out of it, obviously people are, here are very happy about it. So I can see right now one of our volunteers who speaks, speaks Russian and Ukrainian is chatting to the guy and trying to work out what happens next. He's smoking and he's putting some gloves on. He's going to have a look at the car, see, see if he can get it working again. We'll, I don't know what's going to happen. As I said, you caught, caught us in a bit of an incident. Yeah, so that, that's what really struck me, that the sense of mor- the morale is there. And it's been really nice seeing this group of people, some of whom are on their first drive out to Ukraine, some of whom they've done it you know, six, seven times, start to bond. And you see the, the characters come out. So I know I won't talk too much about them here. That'll be for a separate podcast, because we've got to be a bit careful about identities and so on. But it's been really interesting seeing seeing that develop. I mean, the guy I'm, the guy I'm driving with, we've discovered a, a huge mutual love of classical music. So our... Dom, Dom, you've, you escaped this last you escaped this last summer, I think. But we've been, he's been really introducing me to some wonderful choral music. If you want to listen along, we've been going through Handel's Dixit Dominus, absolutely wonderful 
anthem that I, I'd never heard before, Schubert der Ölking, wonderful tenor, tenor song, and Mahler's leader, Ines Ferenden Gesellen. And we're trying to sort of tailor what we're listening to, to, to where we are. So we've gone big on German composers. And, and since we're not going through the Czech Republic, but I, I love Czech composers so much, we've listened to a bit of Smetna and Mavlast, um, Voltava as well. So that's, that's where we are. In terms of what happens now, well, we have to work out what, what happens with, with this car. We're now quite badly behind on schedule today. I mean, it's a long drive to get to where we're going in Poland. We, we've got some contacts waiting for us over the border to join us to help us get into Ukraine. So there's some discussion now, I think, of whether they stay here, the, the, the truck gets mended, followers behind, maybe we redistribute the aid and material in their truck somewhere else. There's lots of serious faces. One, one, person, did, one person did say, Bloody hell, this, this, didn't, this didn't happen. The first time we bring a journalist and look at all the problems. But I promise you, I, d- I don't think I'm the, the, the unlucky charm here. But that's, that's where we are at the moment, Dom. Brilliant. I'm sorry I missed all the choral music. <gasps> but uh, if you're listening to German music, I presume you are. You've also introduced them to Lord of the Lost, the entry Blood and Glitter for Eurovision. I presume that's a given. Brilliant. Thanks, David. Will you go and check on checks notes the thing that carries cars uh francis final thoughts please thanks tom i must confess when i think road trip i don't immediately think js bach but anyway uh, each to their own first thought today is relating to zaporizhia which of course we've talked a little bit about today i'm grateful to a listener who put forward an interesting argument that actually it should be china that play the key role at zaporizhia in forming some kind of demilitarized zone or whatever. We know that they want to play the role of mediator as peacemaker here. Well, this will be an opportunity to test them on that. And not only that, it would solve certain problems because you would have China not wanting to be held responsible for some kind of disaster there. And it would be a means of keeping Russia in check. Obviously, there's a lot of caveats to that and a lot of concerns. Personally, would one want to trust China at somewhere like that when we know the kind of activity they've engaged in, hostile activity across Europe and knowing that their alliance is more closely uh, with Russia? Perhaps not. But nonetheless, an interesting point to be discussed another time, I think. And I'm grateful, as I say, to the listener for putting it to me. But the core final thought today is something we've, I think, known for a long time, but has now been officially confirmed. And that is that Russia's invasion of Ukraine led to the fastest and one of the largest cross-border migration crises since the Second World War, according to a new report by the United Nations Refugee Agency. So the Global Trends in Forced Displacement 2022 report shows that 5.7 million people were forced to flee Ukraine last year. That's the quickest outflow of refugees anywhere since 1945. Now, a further 4.4 million other nationalities fled their homes in 2022, mostly from Afghanistan and Venezuela, which are, of course, both played by severe economic and humanitarian crises. And the long-term picture, whilst slowing, has had a record-breaking jump in the last year or so. The UN has said that this upward trajectory shows no sign of slowing with the eruption of a conflict in Sudan triggering new migration movements as well. And I'll quote from the UN High Commissioner for Refugees directly. These figures show us that some people are far too quick to rush to conflict and way too slow to find solutions. The consequence is devastation, displacement and anguish for each of the millions of people forcibly uprooted from their homes.
Now, most people, 58%, who are forced to flee their homes never cross an international border. More than one million people were internally displaced in Ukraine, the Congo, Ethiopia and Myanmar in 2022. In total, the forcibly displaced population around the world rose to a record 108.4 million, a 21% increase on the previous year. It marks the biggest ever increase on record. What more can one say, really? Thank you, Francis. Hamish, please, final thoughts. Just my, before my final thought, the uh, I, I think the thought from the, the, the listener about China getting more involved is, is absolutely spot on. In fact, I don't think anybody else other than China could probably set up a, a demilitarized zone around Zaporizhia. So let, let's hope they're listening and get on with it because it really needs to be done. But my final thought is unconventional violence and war crimes. Today in London, the premier of John Sweeney, the, the legendary ex-Panorama, BBC Panorama person, his documentary made with Con- Paul Conroy, the brilliant photographer who, who I saw a lot with in, in, in Syria, called the, the Eastern Front detailing war crimes, in particular the use of white phosphorus to burn uh, civilians and villages. Sadly, General Savarkin, Armageddon Savarkin, who I saw a lot of in Syria, he this is part of his what, what I call unconventional warfare of attacking the civilian population with things like white phosphorus, slash and burn type policy. Putin already is indicted at the International Criminal Court for the, for the uh, Ukrainian children who were deported. I think we will add to that the blowing up of the dam and all the other things. And I think it's just something that we, we need to keep a focus on because my last lecture at Cambridge was on this unconventional violence and it is a horrific development in warfare, really, from Syria going into Ukraine. And hopefully John Sweeney and I will write a piece for the paper later in the week about it. Thanks, Hamish. Rob, final thoughts, please. Yeah, oh, thank you, Dom. And it's deeply moving. Francis, the statistics that you just kindly shared, when we were scaling or planning this project, um, the estimate was 5 million people being displaced by this horrific situation. And um, it's sad to hear that the number's even greater. As you say, the violence, the war crimes are just horrific. And my team are dealing firsthand to try and limit the damage to young minds and uh, and older minds and and provide some comfort and care in these horrible horrible this horrible situation for us it's 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 not the 8000 people it's the thousands more that we're not helping that is heartbreaking they say the road to hell is paved with good intentions uh, not being able to pay our doctors who are refugees and causing real hardship is is heartbreaking and i just want to thank the audience and uh, just invite everybody please um consider helping us help ukraine while the guys are taking care of business back home we're caring for the people that they're fighting for and um any assistance any support to help the program to keep going and growing would be really wonderful so please please think about helping us help ukraine and god bless you dom and the team for um for giving us the opportunity to 
share our story with with your audience today. Thank you very, very much. Slava Ukraine. Hi, podcast listeners. Been quite an interesting day here today. Quite a few breakdowns. Are currently stuck at a German garage somewhere near the Polish border. We think of a very, very kind German mechanic has stayed long after his shift has ended to try and mend uh, the car we're taking, we're driving, and the volunteers are driving to Ukraine. So we think that's about to finish and that's about to happen and we'll be on our way. So we're going to get into uh, our where we're staying in Poland very, very late tonight. Um, I had a few reflections on the place we were staying last night, a town in the centre of Germany. Um, it was an interesting experience being there, knowing where we're going, where we come from, and I uh, thought we'd end today with that. I hope you find it interesting. And as always, thank you for listening. We're surrounded by forested hills. It's dusk here. You can just hear the, the birds starting to nest for the night. There's children playing in the square. There's a couple of cafes and restaurants still open. It's interesting, driving, I think, uh, across the continent slows you down slightly and you see things like the architecture change and the language changes slowly and suddenly all at once. Uh, here, there's lots of wooden beams, cross wooden beams in the houses and some of them have been around so long the, the houses themselves are sort of sagging slightly in the centre, you can see it. And it's an incredibly peaceful, incredibly beautiful place. I guess the reason for this update is just in the shadow of this immense wooden church. This sort of hexagonal tower there. Absolutely beautiful. I guess the reason to just check in here, the reason to talk here is... Because I imagine this is what many Ukrainian towns were like. A bit like this at dusk, children playing, people going to dinner before the war. And it's such an odd realisation to, to know that you're heading towards that. And that really all these people want is to enjoy the same peace. All these people want is to enjoy the same peace that the residents of this town in Germany. That's what they have. It's actually not too profound, but it struck me wandering around after a day in the car that this is beautiful, simple and beautiful. And this is all many of the people I know, many people I'll hopefully talk to. This is all they want to. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first three months for just £1 at www.telegraph.co.uk forward slash Ukraine The Latest. Or sign up to Dispatches our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. We also have a Ukraine Live blog on our website, where you can follow updates as they come in throughout the day, including insights from regular contributors to this podcast. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm London time each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so that you don't miss it. To our listeners on YouTube, please note that due to issues beyond our control, there is sometimes a delay between broadcast and upload. So if you want to hear Ukraine the latest, as soon as it's released, do refer to podcast apps. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine the latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing ukrainepod at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message. 
You can also contact us directly on Twitter. You can find our Twitter handles in the description for this episode. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Giles Gear, and the executive producers are Louisa Wells and David Knowles.